This is the Seven Figures Podcast Smart Money Strategies for Women with Sandy Waters. Seven Figures is sponsored by Family First Credit Union. When it comes to financial education, earning and learning go hand in hand. And Family First is here to help you and the greater Rochester community with both. Okay, so this is the final stretch. Before we know it, it's going to be a new year. So that means tax time right around the corner. Sorry, I know that is the last thing you want to hear about, but we have to be prepared and things are going to be a little different this year. So let's find out what is going to change this time around when we meet with our tax person. Lynn musensky Keck. CPA at the Bonadio Group and Associate Professor and Chair of Accounting Finance at St. John Fisher College joins us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, I'm excited. So the only I person who's excited. excited about taxes, I think. <laughs> you are the only person. Now, and you know, I've been searching for a good tax person go-to for the longest time. But but to really understand it, you got to find the right person. So I was so excited to learn that you're a professor. Yes. So you can make this easy to understand. For I us. hope so. <laughs> and I hear you're one of the favorites, too, that your students just rave about you. I, I hope they will agree to that when they hear this. But yes, they're good students. I love working with students. So you can tell you're passionate about it. I am. I, everybody laughs at it, but I am the only person passionate about taxes, I think. <laughs> well, OK, so just talking about money in general, mm-hmm. finances. It feels overwhelming, intimidating. That's why I think people aren't as engaged, fully engaged with their personal finances. They just leave it up to a professional, right? Agreed. But if you really think about it, personal finance doesn't have to be that challenging. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just follow a plan and you're set to go, right? Yes. But when it comes to taxes... That I feel is a little different. Yes. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, because it's ever changing, right? It's ever changing. I think it depends on your situation. So okay. if you run a business or um, and you have a lot of activity going on, I think it could be daunting. I think if you're generally an employer-employee relationship um, and you might have some dividends and interest, I think you can handle that. Okay. But I do think um, it, it is daunting. It's you know There's a lot of forms. There's a lot of language. And just like I um, get excited about it because that's what I practice, I'm sure, like I was talking about earlier, if I was in the medical practice and I'm hearing all that jargon, that would make me nervous. So it's just getting comfortable with understanding what does it all mean and being confident that, you know, you can do it. You know, that's my whole goal is that you don't, if you take some time, which some people don't have, and so they can't do it, but you can do it. If And and depending on your circumstances, it might be easier than you think. I think once you add in the government factor in this like mm-hmm. i don't want to make a mistake yes. i don't want to have them come after me yeah. because they will penalties <laughs> <laughs> and interest <laughs> yes um okay so now i was told that it's wise to meet with a tax professional during the summer months to make mm-hmm. sure that you're doing everything right do you agree with that I think if you are an employee in an employer relationship and you have withholdings right, and you have you're not making any more money than in previous years and that's really all you have, I think you're in good shape. I don't think that should drive you to plan. I think what happens is, though, sometimes people have additional income that they um, through consulting, maybe like you did a you received this thing called a 1099 miscellaneous. You're not you know, you go over and you do something, they pay you a couple hundred bucks. Um, and or if you have dividends or if you have interest, and that's items that you're really not paying taxes on until you file your tax return. 
And if you have items like that, that can get a little tricky. And the fact that you need to pay in your taxes. One of the myths about taxes is it's all due on April 15th of the following year. And taxes are actually, the government requires you to pay in over the entire year. Most people don't realize that because it's withheld upon upon you know, our paychecks, they mm-hmm. take withholdings out. But if I consult and get 10,000 bucks or if I, you know, have a large, um, I sell some stock and I have a large gain, those are all items that there's no tax being withheld upon. And I probably should be paying something into the government during the year. Oh, okay. And okay. it's same thing for people who are Schedule C. So maybe I'm a landscaper and I have my business and it rolls through me. You can't just say, I'm going to wait and pay my taxes the next year on April 15th. You probably have to be paying into the government over the year. And there's actually four kind of required um, estimated tax payment dates that they would have to watch for. And that's when I would encourage people, when they have that type of activity outside of an employee-employer relationship, regular withholding, they should probably go talk to somebody and make sure they're on track for not getting into any Issues of not paying tax on time. Now, we've heard a lot about the new tax law. It's going to be different this year. It's going to be a lot different. And there's a debate on who does it benefit. So before we get there, though, and get your opinion on this and what is going to be different, I want to learn about your money story. We always start (laughs) with your money story because it's so fascinating and interesting how people got to where they are Mm -hmm. and inspiring in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. So was this a like... A love from day one with you, money? Mm. Did you have a lot of money conversations at home with your parents? Or Well, it's interesting. I think my, our background in my family was more um, traditional and that my father um, was the one who kind of oversaw the money and my mom, you know, didn't, mm-hmm. wasn't as involved. And I think that, you know, in my opinion, put a strain on their relationship. So it was really important for me um, to at least have my own money and, and whether it's a lot or a little, but be able to manage it and understand it and and be able to react if I needed to. So um, and learning at an early age to live within your means. And so um, I personally, I think, just feel more confident about making decisions and being able to do things when I understand where my money is, what how much I have for savings. And, you know, it has allowed me not in the beginning, you know, everybody's scraping at the beginning, trying yeah. really hard to get their their nest egg. But it has allowed me as I grow um, to entertain ideas, which I haven't done yet, but um, of a flexible schedule. You know, maybe maybe we could I could go down to four days a week. I have wow. three children and because I know what I have and I know where we are as a family. And so whether or not, in my opinion, whether or not you're actively involved in the process every month you should be active in knowing your overall status as a family um and i do know it's it it does tend for whatever reason to dominate you know the finance piece that men feel comfortable with it and they do it more often than women but honestly between my me and my friends a lot of it is switching to the females doing it i think it's really good for females to do and they're really organized and they can do it really well well you're you're right in saying that it is a generational thing because I remember the same scenario. Mm-hmm. My mom didn't really, I mean, she knew what was going on, but it was really my dad who took charge. And she would always tell me, ever since I can remember, Sandra, earn your own paycheck because yeah. she didn't work. She stopped working to raise us. Mm-hmm. Earn, if I'm going to give you any advice, it's earn your own paycheck because look at, I have to ask your father if I can. Yeah. And my dad would always give her the money, obviously. Right. But just the even thought of, 
asking him if something was in the budget. Yeah, I would flip the question back at you. Would you ever want to do that now? Like, I don't want to have I you should always, in my opinion, you should always have the discussion with your your significant other. Yeah. You know, I would like to do this and not just go out and buy, you know, something that's two hundred dollars. But, you know, it's nice to know I'm not asking for permission. Yes. And I think not that they were, but it was just a different time. It was right. It wasn't. Nobody was holding someone else down intentionally. Right. It was just the way it was. Right. But it's interesting that both of our moms yeah. said, you know, yeah. could, felt it, you know. <laughs> right. So I think a lot of moms did. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So now let's let's talk about what's changing. First, do you. Okay. I don't know if this is a question I could even ask. What side are you on with this new tax laws? Are, are, do you think it's going to help the majority of us, the middle class? Yeah. Or what do you think it is designed to help? Who it um, is? I, it's a a tough question. I think at at the individual level for middle class, this is who I see potentially getting helped. And the, and there is a potential that aren't going to get helped. And so I'll explain. Okay. I think that, um, for example, um, my in-laws will get helped with this because they weren't going to take what we call an itemized deduction, which is really a lot of people switch to itemized deductions when they own their first home Mm -hmm. because they had paid off their mortgage um, because they're older in life um, and they didn't really have a lot of state taxes. So the standard deduction was going to give them a better benefit, even under the old rule. And for those people, um, now the standard deduction has been almost doubled. So they're receiving a, a pretty good benefit for that. Um, I think for middle-class, um, families with children, I think you're potentially going to be surprised that you're going to get a benefit. And the reason I say that, and probably some people are sitting there saying, what is she talking about? Because if everybody remembers, you might remember the words personal exemptions under your tax return. Okay. And so that's when anyone who's a U.S. citizen has a dollar over their head. I, I joke in class. It's roughly was four thousand dollars. So I would have a four thousand deduction for myself. My husband would You're have only a, worth four thousand. I know. <laughs> I always say to the kids, "This is not motivation for you to have children for that four thousand dollar deduction." Okay, let me tell you, as a mother of three, um, but you know, my kids have four thousand. So all of us together, I well, there's a family of five. We would generate about a twenty thousand dollar deduction. And a lot of people, so an exemption amount is 4,000, 4,000 times five is 20. And that was a deduction that you just got for breathing and they took it away in 2018. It's now gone. And that made a lot of people anxious and nervous Oh, because before, in my example, for example, I'd get a $20,000 deduction. And if my tax rate was a uh, 20%, that was essentially a $4,000 save cash savings. So does that mean, and forgive me. No. Yeah. You're a professor, so I feel like I can ask you these dumb questions. No, ask away. When you say a $20,000 deduction, does that mean like you made $20,000 less? That You didn't make $20,000 less, but you were allowed. So say I made $100,000, my husband and I made $100,000. Instead of that pure $100,000 being taxable, they'd allow us to deduct the $20,000. So only $80,000 right. was okay. taxable. So yes. now it, okay, it looks like $80,000. Yeah, it looks okay. like eighty. dollars And so essentially, if my tax rate's 20%, then... I had a cash savings of that $20,000 times 20% or $4,000. Oh, yeah. So that's gone now. Oh, so now you, that we learned it, now, now that it's we gone? learned it, that was last year, people. <laughs> um, in 2018, they said no more personal exemptions. And a lot of families, rightfully so, kind of tensed up. But what they did that 
I think is a significant offset to that is there's this thing called a child tax credit. And if you have a, a dependent, I'm going to keep it really simple, okay. and I'm not going to get all the, all the rules, but a dependent who's 17 years or younger, okay. then you're probably, we're looking at the child tax credit in 17 or 18. So the, the, the law for the credit isn't new, but what happened in 17 is they had a very low taxable income amount that would kick you out of the tax credit. So if you had, I think it was like for a married couple, if you made more than, I'm going to throw out a number, I don't know off the top of my head, $120,000, they would say, you're not allowed this child tax credit anymore. Now under the 2018 law, married filing joint couples can make up to $440,000 and still get this credit. So many more people are going to be able to take advantage of this credit. In addition, under the old rule, the credit was only $1,000 per kid. I'm not saying only because that's great. Yeah. Um, But they (laughs) upped it in 2018 to $2,000 per kid. So now more people are going to be able to take the credit and it's Mm $2,000. And the significance is it's not a deduction. It's a credit. And credits are really important because credits are a dollar for dollar deduction in my tax due. So in that previous example where I said I got $20,000 of the deduction, remember we had to multiply it by our tax rate to figure out how much we were saving. A credit is a dollar for dollar for what I owe as tax. So if I have three children, which I do, that hopefully will fall under this credit, we're going to get a $6,000 reduction in our tax due. So if you owe... Six thousand. Now you owe zero. Right. But if you don't owe six thousand, then you get that money back. It uh, offset- its portion is refundable. Not all of it's refundable. Okay. But the beautiful thing is, so you—it's not just. So say, I think most people would owe money, right? Just because they've withheld from your paycheck, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, your credit would come in first. So the six thousand dollars would offset your tax due first before what they withheld okay. from your paycheck, and then you would get a refund back, right? for the money from your paycheck that they withheld upon. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So unless you don't make, you know, even somebody who makes $40,000 at a 10% rate, which it would probably be higher, um, would pay $4,000 in taxes. So that credit would offset that tax due. Okay. Okay. So that's one of the big changes. So that's the change that everybody's talking about. Right. That's a huge change. And a lot of people, again, were nervous about personal exemptions going away. But my point being, if you have kids, maybe you don't have to be as nervous if they're 17 or under because you're probably, I would assume a lot of people in our market are not over the 440 for their Mm -hmm. taxable income. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to get access to that tax credit. And a credit is actually much more valuable than a deduction. But the people who I don't think are benefiting from this potentially would be someone like my brother who um, doesn't have kids, right? And so they lost the personal exemption amount for themselves and potentially their spouse, that $8,000 deduction. But now they have no credit because they don't have any kids. Not regaining that anywhere. Right, right. Okay. So I think that, 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 um, that working married couple or that working single person, um, they lost that $4,000 deduction and now they have no credit. They might have an increased standard deduction amount, um, which is true. They increased this standard deduction, so um, which is, again, a general deduction that you get um, just for breathing. Um, but it, it, depending on how the numbers work out, it could not be beneficial. 
You're never going to make everybody happy, though. Yeah. No matter what the law is, right? Right. Right. You can't, everybody's different. Everybody's life is different. So right. I guess we can just remind ourselves of that. But with the itemized deductions, how many people actually did that? Instead of the, oh, a lot of, right? Because I, I used to do the itemized deductions yeah. and I was almost, I'm going to be honest, I don't know if this was the right way of thinking, but I was almost relieved. Like, thank heavens. I don't have oh. to keep track of my mileage. Thank heavens you I don't have though, to. You though, because New York State's a whole different ballgame. Oh, uh, shoot. <laughs> well, let's talk about it. So, so let's, I guess I want to take a step back and say, a lot of you might be sitting there and saying, I'm still a little confused. If you earn wages, you brought your wages into your tax return. Then you took those personal exemptions, which we talked about prior year, that are now gone. But then you have a choice to take a standard deduction or an itemized deduction. And in previous years, you would take whatever was greater. Right. And for us, the itemized deduction, when you switch to owning a home in New York State, you generally, your itemized deductions were greater than your standard. But there's a variety of reasons now where that might not be the case. And a lot of people have heard about the state and local tax cap. Like it makes people so nervous. What does it mean? What it means is prior to the law change, when I earned money in New York State, I paid New York State income tax. I could deduct that as an itemized deduction. When I buy a house in New York State, I pay real estate taxes, right? I could deduct that as an itemized deduction. Right, okay. And so... What happened was in New York State, and what I say is on the East and the West Coast, we tend to pay more in tax. So we pay more in income tax for our state. And Rochester, we pay the highest tax per capita in the U.S. Oh, fantastic. For our real estate. I know. Hey, if we're going to be at the top of the list. <laughs> but at least our schools are too. <laughs> our high schools are good. So, um, but what we found is that um, usually people's, when you combine your state income tax, you pay to the state. And when you combine your real estate taxes, it's bigger than $10,000. And there was never a cap on that before. So if I had $20,000, I could take a $20,000 oh. deduction for my itemized deduction. Under the new law, they said, I don't really care how much you pay. So think about those people who maybe, I don't know, make $300,000 a year. They pay a lot in state income tax. And then they probably have a house that's nice sir than yeah. the average yeah. and yeah. pay higher real estate taxes. So maybe altogether they're paying $25,000 in state income tax and real property taxes. The federal government goes, great, you can pay that, but we're only going to allow you to deduct now under the new law $10,000. So that extra $15,000, they don't get any federal tax benefit for. Which is driving a lot of people to say, well, if I'm capped at $10,000 for my state income tax, and maybe I have some mortgage interest, and I add that too, is that going to lead me to a better benefit than taking the standard deduction? Because in tandem with this, they also popped our standard deduction up quite significantly. So now it doubled, I think it's up to somewhere around $24,000 for a married filing joint couple. So the question is, do you have enough itemized deductions when your state taxes are capped at 10000 to exceed that amount? Okay. But how many people fall into that where they're... They're uh, itemizing? Yeah. Now are we just talking about the people who are more well off? Is yes. it almost, quote unquote, hitting the rich? You know how they always yes. say it's either rich or poor. <laughs> then normally you're only going to see people now itemize, in my opinion. So when you looked at this, when I think the stats were... It might have been as low as 60% of people under the old law took the standard deduction, which meant 40% of Americans took the itemized deduction. Yeah, right. 
they have, with the tax law changes, they are anticipating that 90% of people in the U.S., might even be higher than that, will now take the standard. And only 10 or 5% of people will take the itemized. And you're exactly right. Who's going to be left itemizing are people who are probably uh, higher net worth individuals. Okay. And the reason is that they're not going to get everybody's held at state and local tax. I don't care how much you make, you can only take $10,000. But they have other things that they might take that the general person might not have. Ah. Charitable contributions, right? I make charitable contributions, but I probably don't make as much as somebody who earns double my wage, right? Um, And then investment expenses, you know, like certain investment expenses that they would use um, would be deductible. So those things are going to mortgage interest. They might have two homes instead of just one home. Oh, yes, two homes. Yeah, yeah. My my home on my lake or even a pot, something. I have four homes. So yeah, poo, oh, yeah. Poo-poo yeah. on the poo. two. Um, but anyway, so the, you're going to – so people, like you said, a lot of people are excited because they're like, yeah, I don't have to track all that anymore. I don't have I'm to just... fudge my numbers a little bit. I didn't say that in front of you. By a little Iris bit. is not listening right um, No, but so they were all excited to move to the standard deduction and say, I don't have to track that information or get all that information to my accountant at year end. But here's the kicker. Uh-oh. You might still itemize for New York State. So you might still have to track all that information. Oh, shoot. Well, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't track it. We're going to really fudge it this year. No. Um, but it, so I think from a federal perspective, you're right. I, I would guess that people listening, the vast majority of you, are going to move to the standard deduction for federal. And that's going to be exciting because you don't have to worry about mortgage interest and getting your real estate taxes and your state and county tax bills and submitting all those in and tracking it. So that's that's a little exciting. Um, and I think, you know, I think potentially that might, you know, we'll we'll have to see how that affects people going forward. OK. And then the other big change is um, if you're in a divorce family, right, the child mm-hmm. or I don't even know how to form this question. Yeah. but That whole divorce scenario and then we want to ask you um, how we can save money but before we get to all of that conversations like this one are sponsored by family first credit union when it comes to financial education earning and learning go hand in hand and family first is here to help you and the greater rochester community with both we're here with Lynn, uh, CPA at the Bonadio group and associate professor chair accounting finance at st john fisher college okay so now let's talk about Divorce. Divorce. This is a big one, right? I it hear is. a lot of people talking about this. So one thing's very clear. If you enter into a new divorce agreement after this year, so 1231-18, then essentially what's going to be happening is the person paying the alimony okay. won't get the deduction, and the person receiving the alimony won't have to include it in income. So if you think about this, who normally pays the alimony? The person who makes more income. Mm-hmm. So their tax rate would be higher. So they liked the deduction, right? The person receiving the alimony generally is in a lower tax bracket because that's why they're receiving it. And so they were having to pay tax on it, but at a lower tax rate. And so essentially the IRS looked at this and said, wait a minute, we're allowing someone a $10,000 deduction when they're at a tax bracket of 37%. So we're losing, you know, $3,700. And then we're bringing it over here to the ex-spouse 
and they're only paying 20% on that 10000 or $2,000. So there's what we call leakage. They're, the IRS is losing $1,700. So the IRS needs to raise money for all these other benefits they've given others. Um, and they said, okay, so after 12-31-18, if you get divorced, the person paying no longer gets the deduction and the person receiving no longer has to include it in income. Well, now you have a split group, right? We have clients who we are paying it and saying, we need to lock this down before year end because I want that deduction. And rightfully so, the ex-spouse is saying, oh, it's just going to take a lot of oh, time. Oh, no. We got to wait till next year because <laughs> they don't want to pay the tax. Now, as anybody knows, if you have a good lawyer, the lawyer is going to take the fact that they don't get that tax deduction into account when trying to figure out what that alimony payment mm-hmm. is. But it is kind of, I mean, we, it was funny. One of the partners I work with joked and he said, when I told one of uh, my clients that they literally almost drove off the road because they're in these, this divorce settlement procedure right now. So that's one thing. Anybody who's already in a divorce agreement, if you hold that divorce agreement, we're still going to allow the alimony to be deducted and allow, and the income you would be receiving would still be included in income. But my caveat to everybody out there is if you somehow alter that agreement, after 12-31-18, be careful because you if they put anything in the contract or the wording that says, and we'll follow the new you know, uh-huh. tax act, then now that means that you'll lose your deduction if you're the one paying it and you wouldn't have to include it as income for the one receiving it. So it's very clear if you enter into the divorce agreement after 12-31-18 that the deduction's gone and the income's gone. But I would just say, if you're altering your divorce agreement, make sure you're understanding if any additional language is being added for tax purposes. All right, so this really only impacts those who are dealing with it right now, mm-hmm. a divorce, and future divorces. Not, it doesn't... If you're prior have a divorce agreement, that's my caution. If you rewrite it, right? Because okay. sometimes you amend your divorce agreement. Oh, okay, okay. If you amend it and it, make sure oh, if anyone's adding additional language about tax okay. that you're watching it. Yeah. Okay. So ask your lawyer, hey, is there any tax implication? Was there any changes to how we're handling our taxes? It doesn't have to. So that's the one thing you should know is Just if you're aware. the one paying it, you can keep getting the deduction provided that the divorce agreement that's now being altered doesn't state otherwise. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about how to be financially smart with our money. Where mm. do we put our money so we can receive tax credit? Like a 529 college savings plan. Let's start there. Right. So if you have kids, um, there's a couple benefits of a 529 savings plan. Um, a 529 savings plan allows you to put money into a savings account. That money is taxed originally. But what happens is that growth off that account, to the extent it's used for educational purposes, isn't taxable. So say I put $10,000 in a very basic example when my kid's five in a fund and then they now are 18 going to college and now it's grown to, I don't know, $15,000. Okay. That additional $5,000 would not be subject to tax from a federal Which perspective. Normally if you're investing it in the market, it what you would pay yes. the capital gains they call yes. it, right? Yes. So now exactly. here it's protected from that. It's protected from that. And so what was interesting, and you might have heard the buzz, is under the old law, you could only use it for colleges, post-secondary education. Under the new law, they opened it up and they said, if you want to use those funds for K through 12 private school, Mm. which I was surprised got through because of the public schools 
you know, yeah. lobbying movement, um, then you can. So here's some cautions I have about that. It is capped at $10,000 for the K through 12 school. When you go to college, you don't have that $10,000 okay. cap. A couple things. If when you invested, your investor invested it for you thinking it was not until your child turned 18, don't just start withdrawing from it because it might hurt the way that you invested. For example, right, we're probably a little bit more aggressive in our investment structure if we have 18 years to let it lie versus you're going to start pulling it out tomorrow. So the first thing I would say is if that piques your interest, that you have that capability, Talk to your advisors first before pulling anything out, your financial advisor. Okay. The second thing that a lot of people don't realize about a 529 plan that I think is really important is we know how we all, if you're going to college, you often will hear parents say, I've got to fill out these FAFSA forms, which are financial aid forms. Anything you have in your 529 plan doesn't get grouped in to your FAFSA. If you put it in a general savings account, it's in there. It's in there as part of what you could help your child go to college with for support. Oh. Ah, if it's Ooh, in a fi- that's nice. That's nice. If it's we're in a- broke as a joke then. Uh, yes. <laughs> we're, it's all in that 529 plan. The other interesting thing that I I mean everybody wants to think their kids going to have a scholarship, right? Right. So <laughs> you're like, what if I put all that money there and then my kid gets a scholarship? They will allow you to withdraw the same amount of the scholarship without penalties. Oh, so if I that's new, that's that's not new. That's oh, just in that general. Always, okay. So if I put if I at the end of the day have a um, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars saves, fifty thousand for each of my three kids, and my one kid gets a scholarship, then I could, and it exceeds fifty thousand, I could withdraw that fifty thousand with no penalty. With no penalty. Oh, that's so nice. It is nice. The other mm-hmm. thing I just want to, the last thing I want to point out about five twenty nine plans is, um, do be careful though if you're not using it. For educational expenses. If you withdraw it mm-hmm. not for educational expenses, you could get hit with a pretty hefty penalty. So um, don't do that. <laughs> Can you use it for books or yes. anything that has to deal with, so has to do with education? At the secondary level, right? At the um, So when we're talking about college, you can deal it for books, um, uh, laptops uh, that would be required with your course, okay. um, tuition, and even room and board. Um, and that, in my opinion is what's really the icing on the cake. Once you get through the tuition, the room and board is quite expensive, yeah, in my opinion, to put, to put the kids on campus. Obviously, you feel safer as a parent having them there, yeah. um, but it can be quite expensive. So um, that's from a federal perspective. The only thing I would caveat is all the states are a little bit different in how they treat the 529 plans. Um, and right now, even though the federal is supportive in saying, if you withdraw from your 529 plan for kindergarten through 12th grade, um, for private school, they're okay with not taxing any gain that was associated with that. But New York State is still unclear on if they would deem that a penalty. Of course. Yeah. So Good New York State New York might State. say, oh, well, while federal didn't tax you for sending your kid to, I don't know, Mercy or Mercury, right. right? You use those funds. At New York State, we might tax you on the growth or the appreciation or the gain. Okay. So we're still waiting on that. And do you get tax credit with your income taxes um, uh, being a part of this or no there's sometimes from a state perspective you can get a deduction but generally not from the federal perspective you would contribute in after tax dollars and that growth isn't taxable but you are correct depending on um like we're a little odd um when you when when you analyzed 529 plans um there can be um state tax incentive if you pick a 529 plan in your state 
right? So if I picked a 529 plan in New York, I might be able to get a deduction on my tax return for my contribution to that 529 plan. Okay. But I'm in New York and we're a little odd. We saw some better growth through 529 plans in Virginia way back when, when we were analyzing it. So we actually have our 529 plan in Virginia. So it wouldn't give us any New York state benefit because we're New York state residents. Okay. Yeah. Okay. See, now I just opted for the New York one because I well, wanted you, to get that. And it that, gives you benefit. It gives I didn't you really New York shop it around like you did. Well, I sh- we, well uh, luckily we have a fin- So that's the one thing. I'm even a CPA and I go to a financial planner. Like I can do my taxes, but I like to, and I can talk the lingo, yeah. but I like to get a second look. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do use a financial planner and he was very helpful. Um, and I, I, I honestly laughed when we had our first child at like three months, he was talking to us about this. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Three months. <laughs> but you know, what was nice about it. We got so attuned to giving the money that now we just know that's not ours, right? That it's, yeah, it's yeah. automatically withdrawn from our account for, for that purpose. And I get to see it on my statement that says I have it, which, but we all know we don't have it. Our kids right. have it. Yeah. <laughs> Darn kids. They suck you dry, suck right? Suck you dry. They're not worth the $4,000 get- <laughs> personal exemption, people. <laughs> we love them dearly, but they suck <laughs> us dry. <laughs> so we're jealous of your brother. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Who has yeah, no kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no pity about that tax credit. Um, okay. So now, what, uh, can you run through some other. Um, Programs that are that are helping us with the deduction, like does an HSA plan or what are those other programs that we should learn more about? Okay, a couple things. If you're in a lower income tax and I don't mean lower, I think um, I put it here somewhere, but the, the Roth IRA plan is a beautiful plan. Okay, and you might say, well, why is a Roth better than an IRA? And I think a Roth is better than an IRA because the Roth, while um, you're taxed on the way into the plan. So if I give four thousand dollars to the plan, um, that would be after tax. But any growth accumulation on the Roth is not taxed on the way out. So when I if you put it in now and you're 40 years old and you're not going to take it out until 67, think about how much growth you could get that wouldn't be subject to tax. So a little bit like our 529 plan, but that goes to our kids. Now, what about me? And so the Roth IRA plan, um, if you're a listener out there and you're you're younger, I would say that's where I would try to suck my money. And this Mm. is why. Then you might hear, well, the the IRA plan. I heard things about IRAs. The Roth IRA plan, they'll only let you in. There's a taxable income limit. Once you go over that taxable income, you can't get in the Roth anymore. The Roth is gone in general. In the IRA plan, um, what you can do is you can actually, you're not taxed on the initial contribution, but all your growth is taxable. So in the same example, while I might get a deduction on my tax return this year and not have to pay tax on that 4000 I think, contribution I previously mentioned, any growth from today until I turn 67 when I withdraw would be taxable when it comes out. So if you have the choice, right, you would think your gains are going to be more than your contribution. You probably would prefer for your gains over that long a period of time not to be taxed. Okay. So it's a sweet spot. You have to, you can't be above a certain taxable income. So if you're younger or you have flexibility to get that taxable income down low for a year, look to get into a Roth. Okay. Um, Okay, so now what, let's... (laughs) Wait, we got one last thing about the HSA, you said. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think if you are, this is, and I actually teach my students this too. Um, if you are a healthy person and your company or employer offers a high deductible healthcare plan, seriously evaluate it. 
So many people get so nervous about high deductible health care plans, but those are wonderful plans if you rarely go see the doctor. And normally high deductible health care plans still cover preventative, like your physical or your, for, for females, your OBGYN appointment. The difference between, I'm going to call it a regular medical plan and a high deductible health care plan is on a regular medical plan when they withdraw from your biweekly ch- paycheck, that's none of that money's staying with you, right? That money is going to, I'm going to make up the name, Blue Cross Blue Shield for them to give you insurance, right? For a high deductible healthcare plan, oftentimes you'll see that employers won't even charge their employees for that plan because of the fact that they're saving so much money by entering into that plan. And so while you're not getting a biweekly takeout for that plan, meaning coverage, just to say you still have insurance coverage under the high deductible health care plan. I still say, fine, you don't have to pay for it, but still act for the first couple of years like you're paying to it. And instead of it going to Blue Cross Blue Shield, you put it in an HSA account. So that, this is our first year, and now it's open enrollment again, but this was our first full year almost of doing this high deductible plan. And we did so many podcast episodes on this because oh, I was trying to wrap my mind around it. Right. So we're like, cross our fingers. Hope nobody gets nobody sick. Nobody breaks a leg, which my, my husband did on our high deductible oh no. health care plan. He did. Yeah. My husband plays hockey. I'm like, old man hockey, done. <laughs> but um, he didn't listen to me. He still plays. I just pray every night. So we, so the money, you're right. The money that they were in all these years past going to insurance, we just said, well, we're so used to giving that money anyhow. Let's put it in this, what it's called, an HSA, HSA. account, like a checking account. Yeah. I have like $2,000 sitting in there. And here's my rule of thumb. Ready for this? My rule of thumb is whatever the high deductible amount is. So say it's uh, $6,000. Mm-hmm. Once you get six, once you get triple that, that was what our financial advisor told us. Once you get $18,000, which, okay, maybe not triple, maybe 12, right? Once you get that in that um, HSA account, because remember, there's no cap in how much you can, can, you can put in there. Right. And whether you stay here or leave to another employer, it's tacked to you, not your employer. Forever, right. Forever. Um, then you don't have to contribute that money to the HSA anymore because you've got some cushion in case you do ever meet the high deductible. You've not only got the high deductible covered once, you've got it covered twice or two and a half times. But I don't say stop giving. I say now start giving to your retirement. Use that same withdrawal. And now instead of getting it to your HSA, give it to your retirement plan. Well, in the HSA as well, um, I guess with our plan, I think every plan is a little bit different. So talk to your HR person. But for us specifically, once you hit two thousand dollars in okay. this HSA checking account, now you can move it and invest it as if you're investing in. Yes. Oh, that we so don't have you, that. You don't? No, I like that. <laughs> so now the money is growing because it's being oh, invested nice. like a four hundred one k. Right. You don't ever pay any taxes on it because it's in your HSA account, and you're going to use it for medical. And yep. you don't pay taxes on it when you have to use it. Yep. Yep. So if my husband does, hope not, because I'm praying <laughs> he tears his ACL again, yeah. and we need the money. We just move it over, no penalties, right. moving it out of the investment account and pay the doctor's bill. It is the easiest, most perfect way to... And it's not credit card. I mean, mm-hmm. now when you go to the doctor, you don't have to 
you know, you put it on this HSA credit card. I yes. mean, it's just a beautiful thing, I think. Even though sometimes it's hard to digest when they're giving you a bill of $91 mm. and you just went in just to see if your yes. kid is sick or not. Yes. But <laughs> You're like, seriously, an ear infection? Can't I know, they I figure like, that out over the web now? I don't know. Tough it out, kid. <laughs> the ear infections but killed us. definitely look into that. Definitely look into that. And, and the other thing I would say is not just young people. I mean, if you can get that account to a high level before you retire, it's also a great way because that stays with you. So in yes. retirement, if you're hit with additional medical fees, um, that's a great thing to be able to use. And in retirement, after you hit a certain age, do you know what it is? Is it 65 or you can use it for whatever you need? Not oh. only medical. I can't oh, remember. I don't know. I don't know that off the top. All right. We'll have to all listen back to the previous <laughs> podcast. I can't remember what the age is, but you at a stage in your life, then you can just use it for whatever. Which Beautiful. At that stage in your life. You should. Probably be used for, for medical. medical. But um, OK, let's. Oh, gosh, I want, there's so many more questions I have to ask you, but um, we'll have to invite you back in. Can we touch on, because we always like to do this with each of our guests, um, getting a little personal. Mm-hmm. What is your personal budget like? Because this is this is your world, right? Yeah. Talking finances and you teach it. And, and the more that I ask people about this, it makes it feel more... Uh, normal, like not as overwhelming once we hear the very successful people tell us what their strategy is. So the first thing I want to say is stay in your lane. So I think it, so you had put, I think one of the questions was something that we struggled with when we were younger um, is we kept saying, well, so-and-so purchased a house or so-and-so did this. So we must need to do this. Like we, Mm. and we literally, (laughs) our biggest faux pas was we purchased a house and we knew we weren't potentially going to stay in that area very long. And nine months later, we moved, but ha- couldn't sell the house for two years. So <gasps> oh that was our biggest. F- don't do your thing, you know, and stay in your lane. From a budgetary perspective, um, I also would say don't look. Some people, I hear this a lot. I don't understand how they can afford to go to Florida or go to Disney World. Oh, God, yeah. I don't yeah. understand. You know, everybody chooses to spend their money differently. And just respect the fact that um, that everybody does that. So for us personally, my husband is also an accountant, so we're a really fun family. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're super conservative in the fact that we um, we we have an automatic withdrawal out for savings, and that automatic withdrawal, a portion of it, as we already discussed, goes to our kids for HSA, and the other portion goes to our retirement plan on top of our 401k. So we do contribute to our 401k plans, but I'm sure this isn't the first time people have heard this. That's probably not going to be enough. So we do. The the beautiful thing is um, we have that automatically withdrawn every month um, and we don't count on it. But we also tell our financial planner um, certain things like bonuses, like my husband's lucky enough to get a bonus. Um, we, I don't give that all to him. Like, I like to have a little cushion in my bank account, right? This might be your bonus. Yeah. (laughs) But I... No, I mean, I meant to my financial planner, because he would take it all. I thought you meant your husband. No. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. He knows that whenever we get extra money, we don't ever get it. It always goes to those kids. They just... Uh, Yep. Um, But we make a rule of thumb about bonuses of 50%. 50% stays with us and 50% goes back to our our savings or whatever. And what we do with that 50% might be we just keep it in our bank account so we have a little extra to spend. Yeah. Um, love those months where we get 
an extra payment. We get paid, you know, biweekly, you know, so there's two months in the year where we get three payments. And we really try to strategize during that time for our charitable contributions. Um, so we know that we have that extra payment. We're not as good as some, well, some of our friends down in Georgia. They're like, we give that whole third paycheck to the charity. And I'm like, oh, isn't that nice? I'm like, that's wonderful. But again, stay in your lane. We do not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we do try to use it for that. But it, it also oftentimes the third hit it's around Christmas, which is just a hard time. Yeah. Even if you don't buy your kids crazy gifts, it's just there's a lot going on. Um, anyway, so what we try to do is an automatic withdrawal every month. But we do get access to it if we need it. We tell them if we need to pull or stop it one month, they're very good about doing that. Um, we 50-50 the bonuses or any extra money. Um, and we try when we get that extra payment, um, the, three, the, the third payment in one month, we do try to um, uh, use that towards things that we might need to pay off or charitable contributions. So the one thing I think I also learned is in the beginning, we used to do these budgets and we just wouldn't. It wouldn't work, but we kept the same budget, right? So we'd be like, mm. oh, we're, we're in the red again. We didn't admit <laughs> the budget. And so be realistic about your budget. I mean, I mean, I feel like I give probably 20% of my income to Wegmans. And I I, I, don't, I try to be good. I don't or buy the- Target. Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> cannot walk in that store without spending too much money. And you know, now it's like my, my calming place, like my yoga place. <laughs> Just walk around Target. Um, but- you know, be realistic. I mean, and, and we're and we're pretty good about not buying the prepared foods and trying to buy the unprepared foods and cook at home. And you know what? But it's still expensive. And yeah. and and I always hear people say, my kid actually said this to me last night. He's like, you know, what's more expensive to eat healthy than it is to just not. And there's a certain truth to that. So um, if you're seeing yourself consistently go over in one area of your budget, it's probably not a good budget. You got to re uh, yeah. re forecast it and say probably we're going to be spending more money in this arena so what other areas can we take away the last big thing that was really important for us in our budget is my husband's not from here he's from iowa who knows right (laughs) iowa the heartland (laughs) beautiful place des moines iowa and he has to get home a lot right like we have to go see family it's important to him it's important to us and for our children and so part of our budget has I like to, how you put that. It's important to us, us. it says here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm sure your in-laws are fantastic. Oh, they're what they, but they they actually probably come here more than we go there, but um it's a big trip. It's an expensive trip. Um we try to drive once a year and then fly once a year. And um what we're learning is we need to especially now that our third child even has to pay for an airline seat that we have to sock all, you know, we have to plan for that all year round. So um, everybody's different, and we actually, um, I'm gonna, we actually do a pre-cana presentation at the church about budgets do because really? it's oh, the biggest divorce reason <gasps> is finances. It absolutely and is. And yep. so have a real budget. Make sure your budget is good for what is important to you. Some people might say that's travel. Some people might say that's sports. Some people might say that's theater. But make sure that inclu- that's included. Um, and then, you know, analyze the budget. Every, you know, don't say I set a budget and not check it for three months. Well, that's not really yeah. a budget. You should probably do it every year, actually. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, you should. I mean, we do a budget. We we actually um, rec, reconcile our budget every month. I used Every to, month? Every month. Every month. Because I've got to pay bills, right? Oh. Well, I will, yes. I don't change the budget every month. You I don't rec- comb through all the numbers and make sure it's fine-tuned, do you? I every do. Every month? Every month, I do. Oh, my God. You accountants. <laughs> I do it once a year. I thought that was well, a lot. Well, you know what's 
what's nice now is those financial or your credit cards will tell you this is how much money you spent in food this is how much you know they do that for you oh yes so it's not it's me just plopping it's us being accountants and the funniest part is i do all this my husband's like just give me an update um (laughs) you know we get our little excel out oh my god but you know what it gets me out of putting the kids once to bed once a month because i say i gotta do the budget so um, oh god what a yeah what a fun family (laughs) and we're praying to god that our kids don't want to do business or accounting go do something fun guys go do oh my god that's right (laughs) uh lynn musensky keck cpa at the bonadio group and associate professor and chair accounting finance and st john fisher now it makes perfect sense why your students love you so much thank you thank you for doing uh for doing the podcast with us of course thanks for having me There was a lot we talked about. Hopefully it was helpful for you. All right. From one strong female role model to another. Next week, Catherine Ferkins, a successful business owner, will share her money story. Have a fantastic weekend. I will talk to you next week. If you have a personal finance question or feedback about the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to Sandy at Sandy at RochesterBuzz.com new episode every Friday. Listen, subscribe, and tell a friend about the Seven Figures podcast. Smart money strategies for women.